All right, well, uh, welcome and thank you. Um, thank you again for coming on this rainy uh, Sunday morning. Uh, it is really good to, to be together, uh, to be safe, and, and to be able to worship the Lord God um, with freedom and with joy and with anticipation. We have been uh, studying the Psalms throughout this summer. Today, I think, is the fourth week we've been uh, fourth week we've we've been in, in in the book of Psalms and we're going through Psalms for a couple reasons. One, uh, one reason we're going through Psalms is because they're kind of like each Psalm, even though it's a collection of 150, um, each of them can stand alone. And so whether you've been here uh, the last three weeks or today's your first time here, um, it doesn't really make a difference. You can understand the message of one particular Psalm and hear one particular sermon and take its message and run with it. But the importance of the Psalms is is we're going through it in a different way because. Um, Probably more so than any other book in the Bible, um, there's a rawness and a depth of emotion that is so true to the human experience. There's a sense in which the, the psalmists don't mince words and whatever it is that they're feeling, it's almost like a, uh, it's like a verbal uh, throw up is coming out. Whatever's inside of their hearts is coming out and they're expressing that, whether it be praise, whether it be complaint, whether it be lament, whether it be thanksgiving, whatever is inside of the heart of the psalmist who's writing, um, it just explodes out with such a depth of emotion and a depth of honesty that probably more so than any other book in the Bible, maybe Job, um, is so relevant to our experience. And it's difficult for some people to read, but uh, scholars have said that the more mature we are as a Christian, the more depth of meaning the Psalms would take on because we realize and recognize how much they reflect the emotions and the realities of our life. It is a far cry from what many of us have grown up hearing Christianity is going to be. You give your life to Christ and everything is going to be great and your life is going to go smooth sailing. It's not like that. Uh, And the Psalms paint the picture of the reality of the ups and downs of life in such a way that none other can. And so um, I, 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 as we've been going through this the past three weeks, and it hasn't been me, it's been we've had a couple guest speakers, and it's really been connecting with my experience and my soul. And so today I want to talk about uh, an experience that probably all of us have faced, and if you haven't yet, you very soon will as you walk along um, the Christian life. And it's this idea of what we do when God feels distant. When it seems like God feels so far away from us. We're going to read from Psalm 42. And as we look into this, we're going to just see how relevant this passage is for us today, as well as as we continue in this journey of faith. Begins by saying, for the director of music, I'm a skill of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants... For streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. 
By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is God's word. So... It begins at the top. It says, for the director of music and the skill of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were uh, basically the music leaders of the temple in Israel. They were the ones who would lead the people in praise using their harp and their lyre and whatever instruments they used. But they were the ones who would lead the people of God in the songs of God. Uh, Meskil is it's kind of roughly translated. People have a hard time translating it. But most likely what it means is an instructive song. So what this psalm is, it is a song that is supposed to instruct the people of God by shaping their theology and shaping their emotions. This song, a teaching psalm, was to be sung amongst the people of God as a way of shaping not only the way that they think, but shaping the things that they feel. Because we all know that the music that we sing has a way of not only reflecting and expressing, but of shaping the things that we feel. And that's what Psalm 42 is meant to be. It's supposed to be a psalm that instructs the people of God on what we are to think and how we are to feel. And how does it do that? What is it addressing? In, chapter, in verse 5 and in verse 11, it gives us these, the, these two verses that say the exact same thing that tell us what he is trying to instruct us in. It says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. The one thing, the one thing that the psalm is trying to teach is what do we do when our soul is downcast and when within us our soul feels disturbed? What do we do in those moments where our soul feels that, that the depth of spiritual depression where we just feel like we're in this funk and we can't get out of it? Look at what he, look at what he says. It's, it's both an external and an internal thing that he's feeling that is weighing down on him. In, in verse 3, it says, my tears have been my food day and night. Ultimately, what he's saying, obviously, he's saying he's crying a lot. But day and night, he's crying. He's in this place of deep depression where he just can't get out of this place of crying, and that is his food. He can't eat anything. I was, we're, we're having these conversations. Sometimes I ask people, what do you do when you're stressed? And some people say they eat. Right? They eat comfort food. They eat red velvet cake. They eat cinnamon buns. They eat spaghetti or pasta, whatever it might be. Right? Some people eat. When I am stressed, when I'm depressed, I can't eat anything. And so I lose all kinds of weight. This is what the psalmist is saying. Right? I am so in the dumps that I can't eat anything. The only thing I'm eating is my tears. As I roll over on my bed, my tears stain my pillow, if they had a pillow back then, but my tears would stain my pillow. And over and over, I'm just eat. That's all I'm eating. That's the food I eat, is the depressive tears of the oppression of my soul. Right? This is what he's feeling. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? People are taunting him. Saying, is your God really alive? Right? Where is your God? They're taunting. Did you see the, the video that was posted on the internet of these people in, I think it was in New York, who are bullying the, the, the school bus monitor. And they're just trashing her and yelling at her. And the psalm is saying, this is what they're doing to me. This is what they're doing to me. It's not posted on YouTube, but I feel it with just the depth of clarity. If people are making fun of me, they're saying, you trust in God, where is he? Hey, you said God's going to come through for you, where is he? 
You say your God won't delay. It seems like he's delaying. Where's your God now? And they're taunting him. It's coming from both inside and outside. He says in verse 5, he's downcast. He's disturbed. Verse 6, he's downcast. Verse 7, he says, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. He's saying it's almost, and I feel like I'm drowning. It's like all of this stuff is so heavy on me that I don't think I can breathe. I feel like I'm being cast down and, and the waves are sweeping over me. It's one after another. They just keep on coming and I feel like I don't think, I can, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. I, I can't even sustain myself. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Verse 10, my bones suffer mortal agony. He's like feeling it in his body. The depression has become psychosomatic to the effect that, to the degree that his body is just breaking down and the sting of death, he feels it within his bones. This is a crippling, crippling kind of disease. As verse 10, they taunt him again all day long, wherever he goes. People know about the fact that he, he follows God and people are making fun of him. Saying, you trust in him. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he now? Where is your God? And both this internal struggle with the downcast and doubt and depression and the delays of God, and then on the outside, just beating down on him, weeping and crying and people making fun of him, and he's completely in this place of depression, and he can't get out of it. And the hardest thing about it is not the circumstances surrounding what's causing him to feel this way, but the hardest thing about it is the fact that God feels so far away from him in this moment of deepest need. So my question is, have you ever experienced a time like this in your life where God just felt so far away? The prayers are going up, but it doesn't seem like the answers are coming down. It's like all, the only thing that you could do, you can't even muster up a smile. You put on a fake smile when you go out of the house. When you go, as soon as you get back home, all it is is just the same old beating down, feeling like the circumstances are crushing you. Like this is never going to change in my life. This is never going to change in my family. This is never going to change in my, in my wallet. This is never going to change in my home. You ever feel like this? We just feel so downcast and your soul as much as it wants to sing out to the lord god it just feels like this song is stifled and and you can't and you can't get it out you ever feel like your soul is downcast and doubting and just depressed in a season like that you ever experience something like that then what do you do the the, the reality is that every single follower of Christ is going to go through a season like this. In fact, all the saints of old, Charles Spurgeon, John Piper recently wrote about it. St. John of the Cross, Catholic uh, followers like Mother Teresa just experienced deep and prolonged seasons of depression where they feel like, I can't get out of this funk. What do you do in a time like that? The psalmist tells us in chapter 42 that there are at least three things that he did that helped to move him from where he was to a place of deeper hope, of deeper trust, and three things that I reckon we need to do, we need to cling to, we need to hold on to, if we ever experience these seasons of doubting and depression and oppression in the way that is described here in Psalm 42. The first thing that he did is he made a choice to move towards God. 
Okay, it's just each word in that is, is crucial. He made a choice to move towards God. What do you do in a situation like that? If you were to s- describe yourself and your response in that situation, what would your analogy be? What would your metaphor be? As a jilted lover turns his face away from the object of his affection, so too I turn my face away from God. As a child who is denied the candy that she so desperately wants, goes and pouts and throws, shakes her fist at her parent, so too I shake my fist and ignore my God. What, what is it that we do? Because I, I think sometimes in my experience, I do what these, two, what these two people do. Like I ignore God. I move away from him. I find reasons not to trust him. Is that right? I know it's not right. What does the psalmist do? Here's his metaphor. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? And in the midst of all that is going on, he makes a conscious decision. He makes a choice that I'm not going to move away from God. I'm not going to run away from God. I'm going to move towards him. I'm going to go to the only one that I know my soul is made for. And I'm going to go towards my God. I'm going to choose to go towards him. What do we sing? My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. He makes a conscious decision and says, I'm going to, in defiance against what I feel, I'm going to move towards God. In defiance against my emotions and my situation and and the oppression that is rising up against my soul, in defiance against that, I'm going to move towards God. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, okay, as the deer, you know, goes through this time, you picture him in the midst of a drought. And this deer is about to die without the water that he was made for. He's saying, in the same way you and I were made for the God whom our souls long for, we were made for him, and he's the only place that we will find hope and comfort. And so he says, as the deer is searching in the midst of a drought, longing for streams of water, what does the deer not do? The deer doesn't go and, hey, I'm going to go take a walk. I'm going to find a doe, a deer, a female deer, And I'm going to take a walk to remember with her. It doesn't say that he's going to go and and climb a mountain somewhere. Or I'm going to go and I'm going to eat apples and berries and figs. It doesn't say any of these things. He says there's one thing and one thing alone that I need in a place, in a time like this. And it is living water. And so the psalmist says, just as you can imagine a deer starving, longing, panting for water, would not dilly-dally with all of these other things, but he moves towards streams of water so that he might drink and be satisfied. So too, my soul does the exact same thing. What do we do when we feel like God has abandoned us? A lot of times we find our hope and comfort in the arms of a lover that we think will give us what our souls long for. A lot of times we say, I'm going to dull it. I'm going to distract it. I'm going to prolong. I'm going to delay uh, the answer from God by going and doing something that's going to take my mind off of it. I'm going to go and I'm going to hang out with my friends and we're going to watch this game and we're going to drink this beverage and then we're going to just forget about it until the next day. I'm going to go and I'm going to call up all of my buddies and we're going to 
ride in our car and put our windows down and scream out loud and then we're going to go back home. We do a bunch of different things, don't we? In the midst of the depression of our soul, we get ourselves into um, whatever it is that that we like to do in order to take our minds away, to throw ourselves into um, twilight sagas or I don't know um, what, what... it is, is it, what is cool and, and hip these days. But um, these things are okay, of course. These things are okay. But if we're moving towards those things as an outlet, as a, as a distraction from moving towards the very one who can help our soul, then we're moving away from the only one that can give us life in the midst of a situation like this. There is a defiant attitude that I love about the psalmist, that I long for this sense of I don't care what's going on inside or outside, but I'm going to move towards God. You know, I, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but growing up, I used to love watching wrestling. I know I've, de- I've definitely talked about that. And I've talked about how wrestling back then is different from wrestling now and how back then, like we only had four or five TV channels. And so in, if you didn't have cable TV, which only when I was growing up, like 20 percent of homes had, if you didn't have cable TV, then you couldn't watch the good wrestlers wrestling. You could never watch the champion of the world wrestle. And everybody knew who the champion was. It was Hulk Hogan because there was never, ever, ever anyone who could beat him. Today, wrestling these days, there's a new champion almost every week. And so you don't know who the champion is. You hear the name of the champion. I was watching um, WWE Raw the other day, and I was the heavyweight champion of the world. And I was like, who is this guy? Like, he's, he's like a nobody. It would never happen in our day, never in my day growing up. It was always Hulk Hogan and nobody else. And if you're the champion, no one should be able to beat you ever. And so here, Hulk Hogan was a champ, and you would never be able to watch Hulk Hogan on TV, except every once in a while, like once a month when Sat- during the Saturday Night Live time slot, there would be this thing called Saturday Night's Main Event. And that's when all the good wrestlers would wrestle. They wouldn't wrestle scrubs. They would wrestle like, like good guys would wrestle against equally bad but good wrestlers. And they would fight, and it, you would never know who's going to win. When you watch on Saturday morning on 11 o'clock on Channel 20, you always knew who's going to win the match because they always put the scrubs in. But when you get that Saturday's main event, it's the, the, the real deal. And this is the only time that you could ever watch Hulk Hogan wrestle. This was like we would – as – like, I tried so hard to stay up until 11.30 on Saturday night just to watch Saturday night's main event in the hopes of catching Hulk Hogan. Now, the reason why Hulk Hogan was a champion of the world, why he, could, he would never lose to anybody, is not because he had this, like, flowing hair or because he had this great leg drop, which was the worst finishing move of all the wrestlers. But this is the reason why Hulk Hogan was the best wrestler of all time is because in every match, there will be a time when he's just getting pounded and he's just getting beat down and he's being taunted and they're making fun of him and the other wrestler's manager is like yelling at him saying, oh, you know, you're, you're bad and you're no good and, and all this stuff. And, and Hulk Hogan will be getting pounded and every other wrestler would just, just take the pounding and they would give up and they would get pinned for the count, one, two, three, and it'd be over. But Hulk Hogan was different. Every match, he'd be getting beat up, he'd be getting pounded, he'd be getting destroyed, and all of a sudden, it's like this superhuman, incredible Hulk force rises up out of him, and it's this defiant spirit that says, enough is enough! You know what I'm talking about. If you knew him, he would, get, he would get beat up, and then all of a sudden, like something would click in his mind. And I know it's not real, it's fake, but, but 
but just indulge. And something would click in his mind, and he would just start getting beat up. And then all of a sudden, he would look up, and then he would start shaking like this, right? And he would start shaking like this, and they'd hit him, and they'd hit him, and they'd hit him. And all of a sudden, the bad guys are hitting him, and they're like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? They're like, everything I've been doing is not working. Oh, my gosh. And Hulk Hogan would start shaking, and then the final punch would hit him, and then he would just stand up straight, and he'd do like this. And they would hit him again, and then he would take him. He would body slam, and it was all over. And if you go on YouTube, you can watch some of Hulk Hogan's greatest matches. It is amazing. And you will totally see Psalm 42 in him. It's like rising up, this sense of, I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm going to rise up, and I'm going to fight against this. So I think that's why these other wrestlers couldn't make it to the top. And I think that's why a lot of us struggle so much in our Christian journey. Is because when these emotions begin to beat us down, when discouragement comes, when doubts come, we just kind of roll with the punches. And we say, okay, you know what, that's it. God, you're far from me, and and, and that's all. And we just stop in that place. But the psalmist made a choice to move towards God. In defiance against all of his circumstances, in defiance against everything that he was feeling, he said, I know I know what I need to do. I know where I need to go. And I'm going to move towards God. And so he did with a rebellious spirit, just battling and fighting against everything that he knew he was feeling. And he rose up against that and he moved towards God. And he said, this is the one that I need. And he just begins to, to, he begins to put his hope in Christ. Verse 5, verse 11, put his hope in Christ. I will hope in you. I will trust in you. I will still praise you even when it seems like everything is going wrong. And even when he couldn't, this is the great thing, even when he couldn't praise God, aren't there times when you feel like you just can't praise God? I know I need to. I know I'm supposed to. But every ounce of strength in my heart is gone and I cannot praise him. Even then, even then, he says in verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Even when he cannot praise God, he never stops communicating with God. And as you read through the Psalms, this is the gift of the Psalms. Of all of the different genres of psalms that there are, there are the ones that enthrone the king. There are ones that are praised. There are ones that are thanksgiving. Did you know that the most common type of psalm in the Psalter, which is what they call the 150 psalms, the most common type of psalm is a psalm of complaint. And if anyone says we cannot complain before God, then they have just ripped the heart out of the songbook of the ancient Israelites. See, an Old Testament scholar said, there is no other culture, no other religion in which these people could complain and voice their complaints to God. Why? Because their gods were, they they were afraid, they couldn't handle it, whatever the reason might be. But this Old Testament scholar, I forget her name, she's saying that God allows you to complain because he cares about your soul. And these other gods of other cultures, of other religions, demand a slavish, robotic obedience to them. They don't care about what you're going through. They don't care about what you're dealing with. 
But your God, my God, our God cares enough that you can complain and tell him the very thoughts of your heart. And he's big enough to take it too. Did you know that? And you're not going to ruin God's, oh my gosh, he's complaining against me. I feel so sad. That God doesn't, he's not going to, his reputation will not be tarnished one in any, did you know that in order for you to slap the face of God and spit in his face, you need to come and sit on his lap? It's not like, it's not like God is threatened by us in any way. And he can deal with it. He can handle it. He can take it. In fact, that's what he wants us to do. If, you, if, if your heart is just completely dead and you say, Jesus, I love you, right? You're the best ever. He knows you're lying. And he would much rather have a heart that is broken and contrite and honest because these are the kinds of hearts that he can restore and heal and renew. And that's the first thing that the psalmist did. Okay, the second thing that he did, right, this is huge. Um, and if we can't get to the third point, we won't get to it. But the second point is this. He found hope by remembering times of worship with others. He found hope by remembering times of worship with others. Look at what it says in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. Let me pause for a second. These things I remember. There's, again, there is, again, this sense of defiance. He says, these things I choose to remember. He could very easily, in the midst of being angry at God, forget all of the good times of God. And just remember all the times where he feels forsaken. But he says, I will choose to remember these things about God. Throughout the Old Testament, 350 times in the Old Testament, it talks about, it commands us to remember. You remember this, don't you? The Passover meal. Why why do they every year celebrate the Passover meal? Because this was a reminder to them of how they were slaves in Egypt. They didn't think they could make it. And then God delivered them with his mighty hand and an outstretched arm, a miraculous act of God, leading them out so that every year they would remember that this is our God. In 2 Samuel 7, as they were crossing the river, they would set up these stones so that every time they came to this place, they would remember that it's this far that the Lord has brought us. And they called these stones Ebenezer. Say, every time I come here, I remember the faithfulness and the help of God that has brought me to this place. And so we sing, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I pray by thy good mercy, by God's great mercy, that you'll lead me home again. But looking back, remembering, why do we remember? Because (laughs) we remember that God has been faithful to us. And the one who is faithful in our journey to come up until this point is going to be the one who will be faithful until we get home. And so we remember the work of God. That's why, yeah, why do we celebrate on Christmas? Why do we do that? Jesus wasn't even born on December 25th. Yeah, that's cool. That's fine. But we remember because otherwise we would forget. We set aside this day every year to remember the wonder of the incarnation that God, who cannot be contained in the heavens above, contained himself in in a tiny little baby so that he could do the very thing that could not be done in heaven that is to die for the sins of human beings so that every good friday every year we remember the work of god because we forget but why else 
do the Old Testament writers remind us, tell us, encourage and plead and prod us to remember? Because it is this very thing. When we get a picture of God's working in the past, a vision of that, the memory of what was, I say this all the time, but the memory of what was becomes a longing for what could be. Okay, he remembers these times and he remembers that whatever God has done in the past, God is able to do now and God is able to do in the future. Remember that time when he saved your friend who is so far from God and now you've got a friend who's so far from God. We remember what he's done in the past because we're reminded that whatever he's done in the past, he's able to do that and so much more in the present and in the future. We remember because the memory of what was becomes a longing for what could be and for what is to come. That's why we remember. And what is it that the psalmist remembers? He says, these things I choose to remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. And then if you jump down to verse 7, it says in the second part, it says, Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon from Mount Mazar. The the commentators will say that the psalmist is writing from a place far removed from the temple. He's in exile. And the longing of his heart is just to be with the people of God in worship, but he cannot be in that place. If you remember talking to Hannah Starr, that's the one thing that she used to say is how I long to be back in this place worshiping with the, with the harvesters. I long for that because I can't do that where I am. I can't do that in the place I am, and I just wish that somehow, somehow I could be back in this place on Sundays and go back to where I am. And that memory, that reminder, that longing is, is what drives the psalmist in the midst of his being downcast. The one thing that gives him hope, of all the things that he could think about, the one thing that gives him hope is when he thinks about being in the midst of the congregation, worshiping the Lord God together. Because there are times in the congregation when people of God declare their trust in God when you cannot. And he remembers that. There are times when the people of God declare the faithfulness of God when you don't see it. There are times when the people of God declare the power of God when you don't feel that power. There are times when people of God declare the worth, the love, the matchless supremacy of God, the sovereignty of God when you can't see that. And we need, we need, we long for, we need to be in the midst of worship with other people. Do you understand how important what we do every Sunday is? Oh my goodness, I wish that we could just rip open heaven and get a glimpse of of what heaven sees when we worship together here. And he is dying to get into the presence of God in worship. He is dying to be in that place. What does that tell us then if we willfully choose not to come to the worship of God? And understand how important it is what we do in here every week, week in, week out. It's not just another Sunday. Every time I preach, you know, here's, here's one of the things that gets my mind off of me and onto you. Is I know that every time I preach the word of God, there is somebody who's saying, give it to me, preacher. Give it to me, pastor. Tell me something that's going to keep me going this week. Because if I don't hear the truth of the gospel today, then I'm going to walk out on my faith. 
I know that there might be somebody in here who's like that. And so I, I don't care about what people think about me. I don't care about what you think about me. I'm going for that lost sheep right now. I'm going for it. And every time we gather in worship, there are people who are saying in the midst of the songs of corporate worship, I need to know that my God is alive. I need to know that my God is real. I need to know that I'm not doing this in vain. And there are people here who are depending on you to sing that song of faith for them so that they might hear and they might latch on to the hope of Christ that you have. This is how important what we do here is. Do you understand this? Man, this should change the way we come and view worship. This should change the way we come and and 1030 worship starts, but we ought to come early to prepare and to pray for the people who can't pray for themselves. I understand that sometimes we come late because there's circumstances, there's traffic, there's rain. But if every week we're doing that, then we need to shift the way we think about what we do in here. So I'm saying for God's sake, he deserves our best worship. For your sake, you deserve to give your best worship. But for the sake of the people in here, you need to give your best worship. Because there are people who are saying, I need to see it. I need to hear it. I need to experience it in this place. Because that's what the psalmist is looking to, to find his hope in the Lord God when he's not feeling it himself. This is our glorious calling, people of God, to gather together and to lift each other up and to encourage one another. Do this for the sake of the generation behind you. Do this for the sake of the sixth grader. Do this for the sake of those older people than you who need to be encouraged by you. Do it and sing your song out loud, people of God. We are a singing people and songs are a reflection of a soul set free and redeemed by the maker, by the creator, by the savior of our soul. This is what he's calling us to do whenever we gather. So I think about these times. Last week at House Church, we sang the song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. And I thought about this time when I was in China recently. And I saw this 27-year-old girl whose life is, is shortened by cancer. And everything that she does, she's got a video camera just recording everything because she doesn't know how much longer she has to live. And every time we, we say something, she's recording it. And every time uh, someone is up there uh, sharing or talking or singing, she's, she's got it on her camera. And then they go up there and they sing. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth living just because he lives. And I watched this girl dying of cancer, seeing this with a smile on her face. And I think to myself, life is worth the living because he lives. And as I sing that in house church, I'm reminded of those times. As we sit here in the congregation and I pray for souls yet unsaved. And I think about our brother Albert Kang in Ghana. And I think about how every week for the last few years, in his, our house church shepherds send their prayer requests. The one thing, sometimes the only thing for my mom to know Christ, for my mom to be saved. Every week, week in, week out, come to prayer meeting Wednesday night, share prayer requests, pray for my mom to be saved. And then I watch him sing songs like, my God is mighty to save. Everyone needs compassion. The kindness of a savior. And I watch him sing these songs of hope against hope. When he sees his mother one day hanging out with people who are 
house church shepherds in our Korean congregation. And then I hear she's no longer hanging out with them. She's part of a cult group. And then I hear on Albert's blog how she took down this sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I hear about how she says, I'm not going to believe in Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. And then she moves up to Atlanta. And then as she's driving Albert down to his orientation before he goes out to Ghana, she grabs a hold of him and she says, I've been praying for you every day. And she hangs up a sign soon before they left. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And as she, she sheds tears saying, I'm praying for you. And all of a sudden he realizes that my God indeed is mighty to save. And I think in my heart, the next time I sing that song, when I think about those words, strengthened and buoyed by the faith of others around me, I will believe in my heart of hearts with greater conviction that my God is mighty to save. Do you understand what you do in here? It's not just about you and God. It's not just about I'm not feeling it, so I'm not going to sing. It's not about that. Throughout the word of God, it tells us that we sing for the sake of other people. We sing not only to God, but we sing in the congregation. Psalm 22, Ephesians 5, we sing to one another. We speak in our hearts, encouraging them to find their hope in Christ. It's not just this thing right here. I've got this. Our faith in Christ, get this, is personal, but it's never private. It's personal, but it is intensely corporate and communal. We do this for the sake of the body. I'm going to stop here. Um, Maybe we'll save the next point for next week. But put our hope in Christ. That's that's it. Put our hope in Christ. That's what we need to see. Where can I go and see the face of God? Where can I go and meet with God in verse 2? Literally what he's saying. Where can I see the face of God? Here's where we can see the face of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says that the minds of unbelievers have been blinded so they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Where do you see? Where can you go and meet with God? Where can you see the face of God? It's here. It's in the gospel. It's in the gospel where once and for all, we see the taunts against Jesus saying the same thing. Where's your God? If you really are who you say you are, then come down from the cross. Jesus Christ, the internal, the external, all of these things. And the worst thing about it was the pain of feeling abandoned by God. And yet we know that Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. He was abandoned so that we would never be abandoned. What is it that we need to constantly cling on to in the midst of hope against hope? We'll finish this next week, but we need to cling to the gospel of Christ because therein we see the face of God. Therein we meet with God. Therein we find an anchor in the midst of the depression and the doubting of our soul. We see a God who gave up everything so that we would know and we would know and we would know in our hearts that we will never be left abandoned. It's the gospel of Christ. It's the good news that speaks even to the most doubting and disturbed and depressed of souls. Believe it, church. Believe it and sing it to one another. Let's pray.
let's uh, pray, people of God, and let's ask the Lord God as our praise team comes up to lead us in song. God, forgive me for making worship about myself and about my heart, about my emotions, for making it about what I feel. And if I don't feel it, I'm not going to sing. There are times where, yeah, we don't have the strength to sing. And that's, you know, in a sense, that's okay. But for those of us who just don't want to sing because I'm not feeling it, I think we need to confess and we need to repent to God. Father, forgive me. Forgive me. Cleanse me and wash me. May my soul find rest in you. And as I move towards you in song, help me to sing. Help me to declare. Help me to worship for you, for me, for the sake of those in desperate need of faith. Let's pray together for a few moments and then we'll, we'll continue in worship through song. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to you, we confess that we live in a comfortable time that has a way of hijacking the faith that you've called us to live out, a call to be uncomfortable so that we might comfort the discomforted because you are the one who comforts those in need. Father, forgive us for making it about ourselves and for making it about our feelings. And at the same time, Father, we recognize that many times in life, our hearts are genuinely disturbed. We feel the deep, the deep, deep pain of depression and soul sadness. And we wonder, God, where are you? In the midst of these times, Father, I pray that you would help us to make that choice to move towards you. And at the same time, to think and to reflect, to long for, to find hope by remembering our times of worship with others. And may the memory of what was become a longing for what is to be, for what is to come. Strengthen all who feel like the psalmist. Strengthen all who don't feel like the psalmist so that we might be a blessing and strength to those in need. We thank you so much for your grace and mercy which pours into us and flows out of us for the sake of your church and for the sake of the nations. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. 
pray these things in Jesus' name. 